the funny thing about this is that I've had probably at least three or four other American single malt company and PR people like reach out to me. They're like, oh, we'll have somebody come on and talk about American single malt and whatever. And I was like, listen, we got a guy and that's going to cap all the, our allocation for American single malt talk for the entire year. So (laughs) you got the, you got the guy. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. There's a few things we talk about from time to time on the show. Sometimes it's RTDs, sometimes it's tequila, and there's one spirit that seems to make its way into more conversations, and that's American Single Malt Whiskey. However, I told myself that if we're going to have anybody on the show to talk about American Single Malt, then we need a person that can really go in-depth. And what better person than Steve Hawley, who's the president of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. Steve joins the show to talk about his background, starting Westland Distillery, and then form the commission. We talk about the growth of the category, production methods, exports, and its current journey to being recognized by the rest of the world. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Kevin, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Are distillers concerned about the effects of climate change on their product? On one hand, longer, hotter summers could mean faster aging and reduced costs. On the other, I could see factors like increased angel share or increased variability. Well, that's a great question, Kevin. And there's a couple things to unload here. One, the most important factor for climate change in terms of whiskey production is going to be the barrel and it's going to be to the water. The In the barrel, I mean like the actual trees. Like uh, I've talked about the sustainability of American oak and how that's a priority for the bourbon industry, but that's something to always keep your eye on. We've seen data come out of California where the rain has uh, decreased and that's hurt their trees there. If we get in a situation where the rain decreases in major areas where white oak, that's a problem. That's a major problem. The other thing is, of course, the rain leading to more water in the aquifers and the streams and what have you. Just in general, like having more water is good for everything. And I'll never forget, this has always stuck with me and I hate to cite Family Guy, But Family Guy once said that the next major war will be over water, not oil. And there is a scarcity of water around the world. So you have to take that into consideration that when we start having water shortages in this country, governments may look at that and say, hmm, why are we putting so much water over here, groundwater or aquifer water? Why are we using so much for whiskey when we can be sending it off to California? You just never know what's going to happen in this world. I think bourbon could be a victim of change, of policies changing to help other states that are more affected by climate change than the area itself. That being said, you asked me specifically about what distillers are doing. I mean, Maker's Mark has has done a very good job trying to be ahead of that with a lot of their sustainability initiatives. You've got Angel's Envy that's planting trees regularly. Brown Foreman has a lot of green and major initiatives. But if you sit down and you talk to some of these folks, a lot of them actually don't even believe in climate change. So you have to always remember that 
while you may think that this is a thing, there are people in the hierarchy of the bourbon industry who do not believe in climate change. And I think that will always have an impact on decisions made at the distilleries. So even though you don't want to get political, they still get political in those boardrooms having that conversation. But great question, Kevin. If you want to be like Kevin and uh, have your question read on the air for Above the Char, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. If I like the question, I'll read it on the air. Cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's another great episode of American single malt pursuit coming at you? Nah, I don't know. It's this whoa, whoa, this is whoa. bourbon pursuit after all. But today is going to take a little bit of uh I'd say it not a hard turn, but it's an it's an interesting fork in the road if you will in regards of what has really become of the American whiskey scene in the past few years. And this is something that Ryan we've talked about on the show previously especially during roundtable episodes with the folks from Breaking Bourbon as well as Fred about really where do we see the rise of American single malt happening? And over the past, I would say at least two years, it has become more of a, I would say it's it's presented itself in more situations than we'd seen in the five years prior to that. But now we're starting to get into the point where all of the Kentucky bourbon producers are also getting into the American single malt category. So it'll be interesting to kind of talk to our guests today to figure out exactly, you know, where do we see this happen? What's been the rise of it? And what could we potentially see in the next few years as well? When you hear American whiskey, you immediately go to bourbon and rye, you know, and that's where your mindset goes. And there was this little category of American single malt that was there, but not really exposed. You know, you had kind of where I got introduced to it was I had it strain of hands, you know, out in Colorado 
And then where I really kind of was like, okay, what's this was when Parker's released that malt release. I think it was like an eight year malt release. And it's like, I didn't even know Heaven Hill was making malt whiskey, you know, and then you kind of forgot about it for a while. And then you had brands like Westland and Westward put out some really interesting and unique flavor profiles. And then you kind of see some companies like Rare Character putting out some Kentucky single malts. I'm like, well, where the hell did they come from? And then you know, and then Beam just put out a flagship single malt offering, their Claremont Steep. And so it's like, okay, well, maybe we'll start to pay attention and see what's going on here. And how much are they going to take away from our bourbon? <laughs> no, but uh, are they a threat or opportunity? So no, I'm, I don't know a ton about the category. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in it. You know, I've had some single malt expressions I like and some that I don't. Most people know I don't like scotch. And so my mind merely goes there. So I'm, I'm definitely interested, more interested in American single malt conversation today. Yeah. Well, we're going to be able to bring it the guy and and who knows, maybe after this, you can bring your pitchforks and you know, go into town at it. But today on the show, we have Steve Hawley. He is the president of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. So Steve, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. For sure. Yeah. So before we even get into American single malt and all that sort of stuff, we want to kind of get a little bit of a deep dive on on your background and your history, sort of where you came from, how you got into the whiskey biz, and then how you wanted to take a, a seat as a, a president of association that pays you zero dollars. <laughs> yeah. Um, wise life choices along the way. Huh? <laughs> well, you know, like many of us, I've had several different lives, <laughs> so... Right before I got into the whiskey industry formally, I was an ad guy. Uh, I worked for advertising agencies and mostly worked on beverage stuff. Did work on spirits. I worked on a lot of beer, actually, some wine. So I worked for Pepsi (laughs) for a few years. So I was in that and I was working at the time. This is back in 2009. I was working at an agency in Seattle, Washington, and just slogging away on projects that weren't really near and dear to my heart, trying to keep people employed. And I had an opportunity to start a whiskey distillery with a couple guys that I met who had an idea for making single malt in America. And I said, well, tell me more. And they needed someone to help them build their business and build their brand. So I joined on. I asked my wife at the time, you know, what do you think about me quitting my real job and starting a whiskey distillery? And surprisingly, actually, her response was, if you'll be less of a miserable son of a bitch, then I'm all for it. (laughs) (laughs) Out of all of us here, you've got, you're the only one that got a yes. So that's that's positive. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, I credit to my wife, I suppose. So gave notice on my job the next day and here I was starting a whiskey distillery. So that was 2009. Thus was born Westland Distillery. So single malt exclusive distillery out of Seattle, Washington. Why did we make single malts? We were all interested in it. We were single malt junkies. We wanted to create something that was, yeah, we we certainly wanted to chase a white space in the industry, but we also wanted to make something that was reflective of where we were and where we lived. And corn doesn't really grow in the Pacific Northwest. What grows really well in the Pacific Northwest is is barley. So it was an obvious path for us to take and we put our heads down and, and ran down that path. It might've seemed obvious at the time, but when you were looking at that white space, I mean, when you were trying to figure out a business plan, did you look at and say, here's 
here's the opportunity. Here's the growth. This is where we could see it going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, single malt is the oldest form of whiskey there is. It was the first whiskey. And, you know, at the time, around 2010, Japanese single malt was actually really hitting its stride and blowing the doors off. You know, you, you couldn't walk into a retailer that wouldn't expand their store by a thousand square feet just to get Japanese single malt uh, onto the shelves. So we looked at that and we saw, you know, the first real region or country outside of Scotland proving that great single malt could be made outside of Scotland. And they weren't the only ones at the time, of course, but they were kind of the poster child for it. And, you know, we sat back and said, how come America doesn't have a voice in this global single malt conversation? And that's wrong. You know, where we lived is arguably one of, if not the best barley growing regions in the world. Why are we not contributing to this category? We've got, obviously, I would argue the best beer culture in the world as well. Sorry, Germany. But, um, <laughs> you know, we had, we had every reason to believe that we could not only make great whiskey, but that the world would respond to it. As we got started, other regions were proving the same thing that the Japanese proved. So you've got the Indians and the Australians and the Taiwanese and, you know, people all over the world putting a unique spin on single malt, which is super exciting to us at the time. And we certainly weren't the first to make single malt in this country. I think we would all agree that probably McCarthy's out of Hood River, Oregon was the first single malt here, but followed quickly by my friends down at St. George here in the Bay Area. We kind of followed in their footsteps a little bit, but we were really the first ones to talk about American single malt in those terms. I think you mentioned Stranahan's earlier. They were a visit of ours. They they got started a few years before we did, but they've kind of gone through this interesting journey of, well, it's Rocky Mountain whiskey, it's Colorado whiskey, it's Rocky Mountain single malt. You know, American single malt as a term wasn't really a thing until I think we started not only using it, but promoting the idea of a category. And as we got into that, you know, the the opportunity to start a category doesn't really come along very often, once in a lifetime at best. So it was really exciting to be, you know, at the ground floor of creating something entirely new. Just to be clear, I say new because American single malt still to this day does not formally exist from a regulatory standpoint in this country. <laughs> so we recognize Scotch whiskey, we recognize Canadian whiskey. There are kind of reciprocal regulations. There's nothing in the regulations now that really makes it legal to put American single malt on a label in this country. Yeah, we'll definitely dive into that. Ryan, you had something you want to ask there too. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious why barley grows so well, why there wasn't a presence in single malt or a history of it in the region. Cause it seems like in other parts of the country, you know, immigrants settled there, they had excess grain, then they distilled, you know, with corn or rye. Why wasn't that the case in the Northwest? I'm just, I'm just thinking from like historical purposes or whatever. It's a good question, Ryan. I can't answer it. I don't know why. Again, McCarthy's was early nineties, maybe, you know, why did it even take that long? I think that there's a couple of reasons. One, from a barley perspective, craft beer took root in America. And we can talk about that and the comparisons, which I think are fairly unfair, which is an interesting conversation. But I think a lot of the 
the interest in barley and the work in barley went into beer. And then secondly, which I know you guys like to talk about a lot and I'll acknowledge it. I mean, bourbon is king in this country and has been for a long time. And the truth is, even from a bourbon perspective, you know, you look back into the 1980s and what was everybody drinking? They were drinking vodka, Cosmos and stuff. So, you know, this kind of fascination with brown spirits is relatively new in this country. I think that it just, look, as as you guys well know and are learning, building a distillery is really expensive. Building a whiskey business is very expensive. And it just took a, a long time for that to kind of be a viable option for people. You know, when we started Westland in 2010, it was right around the time when a lot of the regulations were changing from state to state across this country, making it easier for people to get into whiskey making or distilling broadly. I believe, you can't quote me on this, but there's about 3,000 DSPs in this country now, probably 2,000 active distilleries. But back in 2010, I want to say we were like in the 50s or 60s as far as our DSP number, you know, or what where we were in the line. There weren't a lot of distilleries compared to today. So I think it's just, you know, it's just a matter of how those things unfold and what it takes to start a business like this. And a lot of people, you know, when you talk about quote craft distilling, which isn't my favorite term, a lot of those people need to make money and keep the doors open. So they start with clear spirits and gin and other things. And bourbon was understood and recognized. So a lot of people do that, even if they're in Seattle, for instance, there's plenty of bourbon being made in Seattle. So I think it just took time for that to to play out and for the, not only the distilling side of the equation, but the consumer side of the equation, being ready for single malt in this country. I think we want to dive into that a little bit here in a little bit is, is the consumer mindset and is that shifting, but more back to just you. Uh, and so we just kind of understand more of the story. So I uh, started Westland in 2010. And then when was your exit into the position that you're in now? Well, there wasn't really an exit. <laughs> um, <laughs> At Wesson, we recognized that, kind of to my last point, that in order for us to be successful commercially and on the shelf and the back bar, we needed a category to put ourselves in. We would go to stores and talk to buyers and they wouldn't know where to put us. Do they put us next to the scotch? Do they put us in the craft section? Do they put us next to bourbons? And at the time, you guys will remember, bourbon prices weren't nearly what they are now. So to put a $70 malt whiskey next to an American bourbon for 40 bucks was a really difficult proposition for a business like ours. And we can talk about the economics of barley versus corn if you want, but it's only recently that kind of runaway pricing of bourbon has, has really made that not, not really a discussion, but where are we? Are we in the single malt section? Are we in the other section? Are we in the quote local section? Are we in the craft section? Are we in the bourbon section? They didn't know where to put us. And there wasn't really a critical mass of brands for them to create a section for us. So we recognized that it was important that we establish a category and put some framework around it. So we we reached out to other distillers that we knew were making single malt at the time. We met on a snowy, blizzardy day in Chicago in 2016, March 2016, at Binney's, who were gracious enough to host us there. 
And we sat down, we scheduled, I think, like half a day, four hours or something, because we imagined we would we would need that time to hash out and argue over what the definition of single malt was. Uh, we had nine distilleries show up, ourselves included, and we actually came up with a definition in about 30 minutes and a, a lot of that. And, and then we spent the rest of the time drinking beer and having a good time. There you go. Let's, let's go get a Chicago dog. Yeah, exactly. But I think that that just speaks to the fact that what we're trying to do is really obvious. You know, we didn't want to create something that wasn't in line with what consumers globally understand American single malt to be, right? So we had some discussions about different ways to phrase things. And there were things from a definition standpoint that we had to debate. But in the end, what we want American single malt to be is the same that what Scotch single malt wants to be and Australian single malt wants to be and English single malt and the Welsh single malt that was just ratified in the last few weeks. So it didn't take us as long as we thought. So that was nine of us at the beginning, again, March, 2016. And Today, we have 100 members that are part of the commission, and I know personally of over 200 distilleries in this country making single malt. Okay, so it's a force to be reckoned with is what you're trying to tell us right now. Absolutely. And <laughs> we say it's the next big thing in whiskey, right? <laughs> Back real quick before we, we jump ahead to kind of the category. So your position and what you do. So you, you left Westland, and then was this association for American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, was this already established? And then how did you get anointed the, the president? <laughs> Default. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, we were the ringleaders here. Westland started it. And to be honest, we funded it for the first few years. Uh, we started charging dues, I want to say 2019, something, something like that. Interestingly enough, we did have about 200 members, and then we asked people to pay 250 bucks a year, and our membership got cut now. <laughs> how so, weird. Uh, yeah, how weird. I took on the role as part of my job, honestly, at Westland. You know, I took on the role of managing the commission and pushing everything forward. We formalized and set up a nonprofit and charged dues, and we have a board of directors that's made up of a number of different member distillers. And my exit from Westland, which came, is it 2023, maybe a year and a half ago, wasn't really related to the commission. Uh, it was related to my move down here to the Bay Area and other things that I wanted to do in whiskey. So when that happened, basically the folks that I work with and the board members came to me and said, sorry to hear that you're leaving Westland, but are you leaving us too? And I said, no, I'm happy to continue forth and carry the banner for this. And, and honestly... It's fun. It's, it's a lot. I get to do stuff like this and I get to champion single malt and and challenge the doubters, which is also really fun. Yeah. Speaking of two of them right now. Yeah. Speaking of two of them right now. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, we'll see. So when you set out to start Westland, what were there like a, a case volume sales per year that American single malt was doing like nationwide and like compared to like what it's doing today, like how it's grown in those you said 2010, so 13 years, whatever. That's a really interesting question and one that I can't answer. I'll put it to you this way. So our, our business plan for Westland, as any good business plan, should be malleable. And it was very malleable at the beginning, very short. And all credit to the family that funded the business for seeing the opportunity and taking the leap because there wasn't 
a lot of data to put on a on a page. You know, if we were doing this for one of the big spirits companies, they would have raised an eyebrow because it wasn't a business plan <laughs> that took the form that you would expect. You know, a lot of it was gut, going on gut and saying that there's an opportunity here and quite honestly making the opportunity for ourselves. So there wasn't a lot of data, there wasn't case sale numbers to look up. And to this day, it's still very difficult. It's one of the banes of my existence. And for all my members that are listening to me now, please fill out the survey so I can collect the data, <laughs> right? So I ask my membership, how much barley do you use? How many people do you employ? How many cases do you sell, et cetera? Because I get this question from folks like you all the time. I get questions from the press. I get questions from the government. What impact is this category actually having? on our country and on our economy, et cetera. So there are some numbers to be found. The reality is the vast majority of people making single malt in this country, and honestly, the vast majority of people making bourbon in this country are independent distilleries. They don't have to report anything. There's no real function for them to support. There are some measures that can be found. Let's take IWSR data, for instance, which again is self-reported in a large way. So you have to take the data with a grain of salt, but that shows that single malt in America is the fastest growing category here by percentage, right? So volumes are relative. You know, obviously there's a lot more bourbon being sold in this country than there is single malt by oceans, right? I couldn't even put my finger on a guess on how much single malt's being sold in this country. Because right I assume a lot of those 200 distilleries are I know you hate the word craft. <laughs> Distillers are probably selling a lot out of gift shops and not out on yep. shelves. And Absolutely. You know, they're not part of that, like Nielsen data and whatnot. So it's probably hard hard to track that. Yeah. And then the rise of direct-to-consumer, which I know you guys have talked about on the podcast as well. You know, that, that complicates we're on matters. That, we're on the same board on that. I think, the same page I, think, I that. think we all are. That's one thing we can agree on, right, guys? Yeah, that's right. That's a whole different rabbit hole, a whole different episode. Yeah. <laughs> So another just quick question about the American Single Bolt Whiskey Commission. Is this analogous to, say, Discus or what the KDA is to Kentucky bourbon distilleries where, as you mentioned before, you're championing the category, you're lobbying for things, you're sending letters to politicians or whatever it is? Yeah, I sent a video to the to DC yesterday <laughs> or a couple of days ago. So very analogous to that. Member-driven, member-operated organization that's advocating for something, in this case, a category of whiskey in the marketplace. A lot of people like to compare us to the Scotch Whiskey Association, which is similarly member you know, driven. The only difference that I would say between us and them is, you know, we definitely don't see ourselves as arbiters of quality in any way, or the police of the category. In this country, the TTB is tasked with that role. Really, we're advocates and we're educators. We're a place for producers as well to come and band together and learn together and push a category forward. So, yeah, very similar to some of those other organizations. Very cool. I guess the big one that we'll kind of tackle here first off is that you said at the top of the show, there's really no standard definition of what is an American single malt. And I know this is something that has it's come up on the show before, maybe a year and a half ago is when we first saw the proposal to the TTB. So kind of mm -hmm. talk about really what does the definition mean and what the timeline has looked like and sort of what's the status of it today? The timeline is long. 
<laughs> I'll start with that. So, like I said, I mean, single malt's been made in this country for over 30 years. So when we came together to formally draft a proposed definition that we petitioned to the TTB for, that was in 2016. That was formally done as part of a process they were going through in 2018, I want to say. And it wasn't until July of 2022 that the TTB actually published their pr proposal. Now, we're grateful to them for the work that they did, and we're very grateful that they followed our lead and proposed a definition that was in line with what we had asked for. And I'll get to that in a second, just to finish up the timeline here. Any regulation really, but certainly the stuff that comes from the TTB as a proposal is followed by a public comment period. That public comment period ended at the end of September of 2022. Now it's in quote, final review process. So what TTB does is they review all of the comments that came in and those comments can come from anyone anywhere in the world, not just producers, not just people in the trade, anyone. So they then take those comments and they review them. And if they want to make any adjustments to their originally proposed definition, they can do that. What's called a standard of identity, which bourbon has and has had since the sixties. So they ask a number of questions and we answer those questions and other people commented on those things. And then it's their task to review all those things, change the definition if they want, or if they deem necessary, and then make a final ruling. Can you crawl anything that was a, a questionable or a comment that you kind of looked at and you're like, oh yeah, we should definitely include this. Or were there some that says, this is way out of left field. We, why are we even talking about this right now? Yeah. Yeah. There's several things that stand out to me. The first thing is a question that we get all the time, which is why does American single malt and the definition that we propose not have a minimum age requirement? Scotch whiskey has a minimum age requirement of three years. Why don't we have that? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, first and foremost, I talked about the nuances of coming up with a definition that fit within the way regulations are written in this country. And as you guys know, we have straight whiskey here in this country, which means that it's at least two years old. That's another rabbit hole that we could go down with respect to single malt, but that's getting super nerdy. Anything that's under that has to be stipulated on the label, no matter what kind of whiskey you're making. So there's already a mechanism in our regulations that's handled differently than it is in other countries, but it, it's there nonetheless for conveying to consumers the age of a whiskey, or at least I would say the minimum age if it doesn't meet that minimum requirement. But also importantly, from a production standpoint, Scotland, I, I forget how many, I always, I always forget the number, but there's how many Scotlands can fit in Texas? It's like you could fit five or six Scotlands in Texas or something like that. I mean, that's just illustrative of the fact that this is a big country and this is a country that has wildly different climate realities from region to region. That doesn't exist in Scotland. Scotland is basically the Pacific Northwest of America all year round and not a ton of variation. So to impose an arbitrary age minimum on everybody across the country from the moderate Pacific Northwest to the heat of Texas, right, is not really reasonable. And it doesn't exist for any other form of whiskey or, or what we would call type of whiskey in this country. And for us to ask the TTB to make a special exception for us that 
that would open up a can of worms for your beloved bourbon, for instance, wouldn't really be appropriate. It's one of those things that even people that drink bourbon, they don't know that bourbon doesn't have to be aged anytime. It can literally mm -hmm. just touch a new piece of wood and then yeah. put it in a bottle and then it's called bourbon. And honestly, this goes back to my point about Who's to say what is good and what's not? That should be up to consumers to decide. So as long as they have the information, and again, our regulations accommodate the need for some level of transparency, which again is another rabbit hole we could go down. But it's really not to tell my friend Jared at Balcones that his whiskey isn't good at two years because that was an arbitrary minimum is ludicrous because he makes great whiskey that is two years old, bourbon and malt whiskey. So... That's kind of the, the answer to the age question. Couple other things. I think one of the biggest ones, one of the, the biggest hot button that came out of the proposal and subsequent comment period was whether coloring, flavoring, and other things should be allowable. Now, you guys in the bourbon world, you got a great thing under your belt by getting that included, prohibiting those things included in your standard of identity. We as a group absolutely advocate for that. And the reason is we want to compete on a global scale. Like I said before, giving America a voice in the global single malt conversation. I know we'll talk about bourbon consumers and whether they are interested in single malt, whether you guys are interested in single malt, and what do you think this category has the potential to be? But this isn't about selling single malt in Kentucky, right? This is about selling single malt to whiskey drinkers around the world. And it would really hamstring us if we put ourselves in a position with what I call adulteration more broadly. If we gave an opportunity to the rest of the world to say, hey, look at American single malt with a suspect eye because they allow all these weird things. You got caramel corn flavored single malt over here, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't begrudge anybody from making a whiskey that they want to make and from doing it the way they want to do it. But there is there are options from a regulatory standpoint to call that what it is. So for that reason, you know, we're very much advocating the prohibition of, again, what I call adulteration more broadly. So those are kind of the two main things. Some people are say Scotch whiskey requires a pot still. Why didn't you guys do that? I mean, that's a simple answer. You know, first and foremost, there is a a distillation maximum that we've included that that is the same across a lot of uh, whiskey types in America. That basically does the same thing that the pot still requirement in Scotland does. It precludes you from distilling to such a high proof that there's no grain flavor left in the distillate. But also that's just not the way that this industry has taken shape in America. You've got a lot of breweries that are getting into the single malt space. You've got a lot of existing distilleries that have made other things that are already built. You know, there's no reason to require somebody that's got a certain still configuration to scrap that or build an entirely new distillery just to make single malt when you can do it on, you'll see a lot of hybrid stills, stills that have columns and plates on, pot stills that have columns and plates on it. You've got people making single malt on a column still, you know, the Claremont Steep that you mentioned earlier. So there's no reason to impose that limitation when the regulations already accomplish what the spirit of that clause in Scotland is meant to accomplish, which is don't make neutral grain spirit and call it whiskey. 
Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. It seems like most American single malts are made on a pot still, but as the president of American single malt, do you find that it's better on a pot still versus a column still? And why is that so? I try and avoid commentary on what's better and what's not better. Because it's probably that's, a religious debate. Yeah, I mean, that that is... Honestly, guys, as you all know, you you sit around enough with a bunch of people tasting things. Everybody's got a different palate and everybody's got different preferences. You two do, I do from you two. I mean, there is no bar for quality, no matter what category of whiskey you're talking about. Some people like certain things, some people don't. It's hard to say what's better. That was a bad question. I'll say, why do people prefer... It seems like they prefer using a pot still for single malts. Why is that the case? Well... Pot stills for single malt are chosen mostly because you're not trying to pinpoint certain things like you are on a column still and draw those out of the distillate and leave everything else behind. I think what is what I'd really love to talk about with you guys is the is the nature of the grain itself. There's a bigger spectrum of flavor to be drawn from barley and in particular malted barley than there is from other grains like corn specifically. So one of my members and my good friend Murphy at Cedar Ridge in Iowa. He makes bourbon. Uh, he's number one selling bourbon in Iowa, which is a pretty impressive feat that he sells more than all of the mass brands in his state. But he also makes single malt, which is a love that's near and dear to his heart. And he talks all the time about the spectrum of flavors that he can create with all the different variables, including cooperage. The spectrum of flavors that he can create with corn is a lot more narrow than the spectrum of flavors that he can create with barley. And a pot still only serves to aid that. It's just the nature of the the more rustic, you know, distillation of a pot still as opposed to the precision of a column still. Basically, you're not trying to clean up all the congeners and whatnot from the distillate. 
you don't need to clean those up as much from barley as you do with like a corn or wheat. Yeah, and absolutely. I th- and I think that a lot of people just skip right to distillation when they're talking about single malt and they discount the importance of mashing and fermentation and creating a wash that is conducive to a pot still and is conducive to a good single malt is it's a whole different proposition than it is with corn. It just is from milling it differently all the way through distillation. So I got a question. It's, it's probably more about the the business side of things. And it probably goes to all your, your members that are looking to try to create and build a category. Are they worried about, you talked about a few of them already that are producing bourbon as well as American single malt. And the people that listen to this show, and of course us, we look at Heaven Hill. We look at Jim Beam. We look at all these people that essentially create all this bourbon and they put it across the shelves and they litter it across nationwide. And now they're also creating some American single malts. They sure are. Does that potentially hurt the category in regards of, like, we had all this small craft movement, these, everybody that's kind of like pitching in and doing this, and then now we have these big guys sort of stepping in and potentially overshadowing everything that's been built for the past decade? No, I don't think so at all. I and we look at the introduction of single malt from some of the big, you know, historically bourbon producers as validation of the opportunity that exists in single malt. Look, guys, these are these are large companies with very smart people running them. They're not going to make things on a whim. They see the same opportunity that we all do, and I welcome their entrance to the category. Amongst our membership, we have almost all of the large spirits companies represented. I can speak to Westland firsthand, you know, that's owned by Remy Quantro. We've got Diageo with several American single malt brands. We've got Pernod, we've got Bacardi, we've got Proximo. So all of these guys have been playing in the American single malt space for a while now. You've got some of the big bourbon producers that are honestly a little late to the game and they're just coming out with some stuff now. But to me, it's validation of the category and the opportunity. So... I don't see that being a death nail or anything for smaller or independent producers any more than you would in the bourbon category or any other category. I think that what's really exciting about whiskey in America right now is American consumers are just on a rocket ship of learning about whiskey broadly. It's interesting when when you go to Europe, for instance, and you're trying to sell whiskey, particularly single malt, half of the conversation that you have with an American consumer, you don't have to have over there because you say whiskey and they assume you're talking about malt whiskey unless you tell them otherwise. And then you say, this is a single malt whiskey from America. Now they may raise an eyebrow because they haven't heard from that, but they know what you're talking about. They know what single malt is. They know how it's made. And they're intrigued by a single malt coming from America or from India or from Japan back in the day. So here in America, we still have to explain that to people. I would argue that most people don't know that bourbon's made from corn. (laughs) No. I know that we run in whiskey circles and we all know what we're talking about, but the average person and the majority of bourbon sold in this country is still sold to people that have no idea what it's made from. People came into my distillery in Seattle and asked where we kept the potatoes. (laughs) There's still a, you know, there's still a long learning curve to go, but 
you know, we're not that far removed from what we were talking about are the days of the Cosmo. I think that the learning curve has been really steep in America. And I think that there are a lot more people that understand whiskey and are interested in whiskey and are learning in whiskeys and are going to distillery tours when they go on vacation. And the sophistication of the American whiskey consumer is leaps and bounds greater than it was even 10 years ago. Who's like your ideal customer? Is it the bourbon drinker? Is it the scotch drinker? Or is it, yes, like you said, that just every day? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's kind of what I was getting at is that a good whiskey drinker, a good whiskey consumer is a promiscuous one. They're not necessarily brand loyal. They want to taste around. They want to try different things. They want to f- discover new flavor profiles. Our fathers, guys, our grandfathers, they had, this is what I drink, and they always have it, and they always brought it home, and that's just what they drank. People aren't like that anymore. They're not as brand loyal. They want to have different things in their whiskey cabinets at home, and they want to try different things on different occasions, and they want to explore. And that's what, to me, American Single Malt is all about. Whether you're talking about just the category itself and your question, Kenny, about the big guys getting in, are they going to overshadow the little guys? No, they're going to have their perspective on it, their flavor profile proposition in American single malt, and others will have others. I think that's a good thing. But then to your question, Ryan, about who are we trying to attract? Yeah, we're trying to attract bourbon drinkers, of course. Look, there, there are... There are dogmatic whiskey drinkers, no matter what the category is. There are Scotch drinkers that say, I don't drink any Scotch whiskey that's not from the Highlands and 12 years old or older. And there's bourbon drinkers that'll never drink anything but bourbon. But there is a growing number of people that want to drink it all. And I think that's why you're seeing American single malt kind of having its moment right now and emerging on the scene is because America finally has kind of a critical mass of drinkers out there that are interested in new flavor profiles. And quite frankly, like I was talking about before, whiskey made from malted barley can produce a lot wider spectrum of flavors than than corn can. It's fun when I listen to your podcasts all the time, you guys talk a lot about the corners of a rickhouse or the row that something's pulled from because people are desperately trying to find something unique, a different flavor profile, even, with, even within a distillery's quote house style, right? They're trying to say, all right, well, I have the flagship and it tastes like this, but what if I got something from the corner of Rick House A? Is that going to taste different? Right. So American single malt is just another option to try something different on a given night. And I think that's what's exciting to people. I think too, with Kenny's point about the six coming out with their offerings, it's like, you know, I've had some great Westland and Westward expressions that you know i was like okay i could wrap my head around this but then you get like jack daniels who comes out with a single malt finished in sherry and it's like it tastes just like sherry or when you had like the parker's one that was just kind of like uh i guess it doesn't like necessarily portray i guess the potential seems like it's kind of like a dumbed down version maybe or something is that a concern or you just don't care you're like more exposure to the category is good at a whole Again, I would say yes to both. I think the exposure is is great and the validation is great. But I agree that, you know, we're very mindful of the category as a whole being represented. 
in the right way. And if people came out with whiskeys that don't kind of taste like malt whiskey, yeah, that is a concern because those bigger companies do have the reach and the power and the war chest of money to take as much of the limelight as they want. So if they're not representing the category, at least at a base level, yeah, that's a concern. As far as did something just taste like sherry? I mean, I've tasted a scotch whiskey that just tastes like sherry. I've tasted a, sure. an American craft single malt that just tastes like sherry. So that's that's down to the distiller and the choices they make and the skill that they bring to it. It's just like any other category, bourbon included, scotch included. There's, again, as a drinker, I'm not going to comment as the president of the commission. I'm not going to comment on any specific brands, but as a drinker, I've had great scotch whiskeys and bad scotch whiskeys. I've had bad old scotch whiskeys and good young scotch whiskeys, right? I've had good bourbons and I've had bad bourbons. So every category is going to have that spectrum. I think what you're seeing in American single malt is that admittedly, six, eight years ago, I would even do tastings and I would host tastings. And let's say I had 10 single malts there and five of them would be excellent. And a couple of them would be average and a couple of them would have some pretty bad faults and not be very good. When I give tastings now and I do 10 American single malts across the board, they're good whiskeys. So I think another reason that we're having our moment now is that we're hitting that tipping point to where quality is meeting expectation. And you can't expect a young category to come out swinging and have everything be great across the board on day one. 30 years in, 10 years in, however you want to look at it, you know, we're finally getting to that point where you can reliably expect good juice in that bottle. And again, you're always going to find a stinker here and there. You're always going to find someone that cuts corners and has a bunch of faults in their whiskey or puts it in a sherry cask and doesn't realize how impactful a sherry cask can be and doesn't bring that kind of touch to the making process. But again, you're going to have that in any category of any spirit. Yeah, just wait till rapid aging starts hitting American single malt and then you can have that discussion. <laughs> yeah, don't uh, get me started on that one. Yeah. So many rabbit holes to go down. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, one last question as we kind of head out of there, because Ryan had kind of touched on the consumer and where you target. And it kind of just dawned on me, especially, Steve, when you talked earlier about this is not a difficult conversation when we have to talk to somebody overseas where scotch is king. Does it make more sense or are American single malt producers really starting to look at and say, I know that we've got our pocket of people here on the West Coast of the United States, but we should really put a lot of focus into exports because we don't have to have this hurdle of education to go after. Instead, we can be, I don't want to say, not to say that, go back to Clear Spirits and Cosmo, but Americans very cosmopolitan. Like a lot of people love American mm -hmm. culture over there. And when you start bringing in that, is there a potential to switch a mindset to say like, listen, it's still a single malt, but just has me from America, not Scotland? Yeah, absolutely. I think export is a huge component of everything we do and everything we talk about from the regulations on through to the education, right? The regulations are important because we need to be able to protect our distillers here that are making something and sending it out to the rest of the world. And if we're not meeting the basic expectations of what single malt is, we're in trouble, 
right? So that's important on a regulatory front, but it's also important on an education front as well. And we need to, we are finally again starting to establish a reputation for making a good single malt. And that's very important across the world. And the culture thing is interesting. It really depends on where you're going. We've kind of murmured under our breaths about the word craft. I hate the word craft for a lot of reasons, but when I was selling a single malt whiskey in Japan, craft means something slightly different there. There's a nuance and it's a positive thing. Whereas here it's a negative thing in, in a lot of cases. When you go to Scotland, do they actually use the word craft for any other distilleries or is it like, we're just a distillery? Look, there are a lot of new distilleries, which I think is exciting in the UK. And I see some of them kind of latching onto the craft term, but it certainly hasn't taken on the resonance or the the momentum that it has here for whatever reason. I mean, it's just, it's it's tough to say that my friend Adam at Brooklady Distillery in Scotland isn't a craftsman because they're of a certain size. Of course he's a craftsman. It's a silly term that means too many different things in too many places to mean anything globally, right? So I'll just say we were working with somebody in another country and they wanted to develop a marketing program and it was all about like barbecuing and like American flags and stuff. And you have to be careful <laughs> in this day and age with how American culture is represented. That's a line to be walked carefully by single malt producers. By and There's a lot of people that are trying to export bourbon now and seeing the opportunity across the world. So a lot of cultures around the world look to America with a lot of excitement. They want products that are coming out of certain regions even in America. And that culture is exported, whether that's Southern culture, right? Or Pacific Northwest culture. It's also something you need to be careful with as well, because if you talk politically, for instance, America is is a touchy subject, as is the UK, right? <laughs> we all have our problems. For sure. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that answer. And that's because I keep thinking of, of course, culture, because it's a really hard sell to do bourbon as an export because you have to change a culture versus something like single malt. It's already understood. So it's, a, it's not as a heavy lift. Well, I would agree that bourbon certainly has more of a identifiable culture around it coming from Kentucky and Tennessee and whatnot. And that's kind of what's represented and what's ultimately exported to other states or other countries. Whereas and Scotch whiskey has the same thing, right? You know, how many times do we have to distance ourselves from the tropes of bagpipes and kilts and stuff like that and old castles and things, right? So American single malt doesn't really have that defined kind of image or culture. And I would argue that that's a good thing because we don't want to, as Ryan, as you put it, dumb it down into something that is a characterization of any kind of culture. If it's about anything, it's about making, right? And that's that can be applied to big distilleries and small distilleries alike. Well, Steve, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a, a great conversation to really dive into a category that we have been seeing on the a meteoric rise in the past, I'd say at least two years. That's kind of when it came onto our radar. But now that we have all these bourbon distilleries throwing single models our way, we're going, okay, we've got we've to figure out what the hell this thing's all about. So I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show, explaining what's going on in the category and kind of being the subject matter expert of, of everything that we needed to figure out about what's happening here and what people need to pay attention to as well. 
Well, thank you guys for having me. Appreciate the stage. And anytime you want to do a single malt tasting, let me know. I'll do it with you. There we go. We'll get you on the path. I know I'm about to go to Kenny's house and grab some of those single malts that we've gotten sent to us. Yeah. Cause I haven't tried them in a while. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it on a, on a zoom or, you know, I'm, I'm in Louisville at the, in a few months. So I'll let you guys know. We'll sit down and drink some. Hit us up, man. For sure. I'd love to. If people want to find out more about the American single malt whiskey commission, whether they want to be a member or whether they just want to read up on it, find out some more information. How do they do it? Yeah. Anybody can be a member or supporter. You don't have to be a producer to, Support the cause and follow along. Just go to AmericanSingleMaltWhiskey.org. And pay your dues. <laughs> well, o- only producers have to pay your dues. So you can oh, there we free. go. If you just want to be a follower and keep in the know and support the cause, because it still is a cause, <laughs> all you have to do is send me your email and you're on the list. So AmericanSingleMaltWhiskey.org and you'll learn all you need to learn. Very cool. Well, so make sure you go check out their website. Also, check out bourbonpursuit.com, where we have an archive of literally every episode we've ever produced with show notes and everything. So if you want to go back and see other times that we have mentioned the word American Single Malt, you can type it in the search bar. But if you like the show, share it with a friend, leave a review, everything you can to help boost American Single Malt and Bourbon Pursuit all at the same exact time. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Toodles. Toodles.